0: Welcome to our video classes brought to you by the Laurel Heights Church of Christ, McAllen, Texas. We are in the book of Acts, chapter 26, and we always like to begin with four fast facts. Number one, the presiding Roman official handling the charges of the Jews against Paul at this level is Festus, but Festus needs help. King Agrippa and Bernice come for a visit, and they want to hear what Paul has to say about the charges against him, charges that we already know have no merit. The problem Festus has is writer's block. He has nothing certain to put on paper to serve as an indictment to send along with Paul to Rome. Paul is given opportunity to speak to Agrippa, and Luke gives us that narrative. Here in Acts chapter 26. Now, it seems good to me in Acts 26 not to read paragraph to paragraph, but rather stay with me. I hope you have your Bible open. I'm going to read the entire chapter, Acts chapter 26. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning, among my own nation in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived a Pharisee, and now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which Our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I am appearing to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me, and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you to open their eyes, so that they may turn from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins, and a place among those who were sanctified by faith in me. To this day I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. All right, let's review the highlights of what Paul said as he explained his situation to Agrippa. First, Paul, after his kind greeting, tells Agrippa that the Jews who were accusing him knew his manner of life from his youth. Paul was not a stranger. He was not an outsider who came in to agitate, and lead people away from God. The Jews knew who Paul was. He was no outside intruder. And it was well known Paul had applied his knowledge and militant energy to the strictest part of the Jewish religion, the Pharisees. Before becoming a Christian, Paul was a well-known militant Pharisee. The Pharisees were men who claimed to know Scripture and lead people in the right way. But when Jesus came, he told them, and the people, the Pharisees, were corrupt. They were hypocrites who gave their own traditions more honor than the law of Moses. Well, before becoming a Christian, Paul had been a part of that strict legalistic group, the Pharisees, and this was well known. In verse 9, Paul says not only did he have well-known experience as a Pharisee, he was more aggressive than any of them, convinced that he should do many things in opposition, uh, opposition to Jesus. He was hunting down Christians and putting them in jail. Verse 11, Paul said to Agrippa, I punished them often in all synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme and in raging fury against them. I persecuted them even to foreign cities. What an irony. Paul is now being punished and falsely charged and imprisoned, waiting to be taken to Rome before obeying the gospel. This is what he did to Christians. He's talking about all this. Honestly, no cover up, no spin. And there is an important part of Paul's story that I want to focus on back in verses 6 through 8 in Acts 26. Acts 26, verses 6 through 8. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day, and for this hope I am accused by Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? See, God made a promise, written in the Old Testament, shared and transmitted by righteous teachers and prophets and parents, that God would send a Savior For all men, Jesus Christ, the Jews had cherished this promise. Paul said to Agrippa, I stand here on trial because of my hope and the promise God made to our fathers. And this wasn't just Paul's interpretation of Old Testament prophecy. Verse 7, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day and for this hope I am accused by Jews, O King. So, Paul was not alone in having the hope of the Messiah. The problem was so many Jews rejected Jesus as the Messiah or were not fully committed enough to go against the Jewish power hold. He didn't match their expectations and interests. Jesus didn't match their expectations, and carnal interest. Paul was like most Jews until his conversion. More about that in a minute. I think the statement in verse 8 is critical. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? We've already noted in previous classes, the Sadducees didn't believe in resurrection Period. The other Jewish unbelievers didn't recognize Christ as the Messiah, so they rejected the specific claim that Jesus arose or knew there was evidence, but again didn't want to admit something against the Jewish leadership. Paul is impeaching their unbelief in terms of God's power. It is a simple argument. If God can create if God can build a nation, if God can destroy the enemies of Israel over and over, the piercing statement of Paul is, if you believe in the God of creation, the God of power, how can you deny the resurrection of Christ or that God holds such power? I want us to see in these words of Paul to Agrippa and the others who were present, Paul's purpose is not just to get himself out of trouble. That's not primary in his mind. What is primary is showing these people the folly of their unbelief. The hope God had announced in the Old Testament and through the prophets was fulfilled by Jesus Christ, who was raised from the dead. That's what Paul believed. And that's why he preached and lived as he did now as opposed to how he preached and lived before he met Christ on the Damascus Road. The great truth Paul is building on is, Jesus, although crucified, was at that moment Paul was speaking, living and seated at the right hand of God. The very hope the Jews were looking for was now a reality, a well-authenticated truth of the gospel. That was Paul's defense. The 12 tribes of Israel were still eagerly expecting the fulfillment of the promise of the Messiah. Paul believed Jesus of Nazareth was that Messiah. And that's his emphasis in the first part of this speech to Agrippa. Beginning at verse 12, Paul tells Agrippa and Festus and the others who were present of his conversion, his change about all this. Paul was one of those on missions to find and punish Christians. He was working for the chief priest as a loyal Pharisee. On the journey toward Damascus, There was this encounter where Paul met. Paul witnessed the one he was opposing, the resurrected Christ. I want to read this again from 15 down through 18. Paul said when this vision occurred, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Well, Paul is reciting this dramatic event. It shook Paul up, and he's reporting that now to Agrippa, Festus, and Bernice. It was seeing Jesus, the one he was persecuting. He was arresting Christians for following the one Now standing before him. He's recounting all of that in this hearing. But this was more than just drama and sensation and emotion. Paul hears these words this charge to get up and become a servant and a witness, to go to the Gentiles, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who were sanctified by faith in Christ. Paul relates this experience, and then he says to Agrippa, I was not disobedient. Paul doesn't just say, I'm obedient to God, so leave me alone. He explains how he came to believe in Christ and obey God who sent the Messiah. And raise Christ from the dead. It is like Paul is saying to the king, Agrippa, Festus, and Bernice was there, You want to know what I'm doing and why I'm doing this? Here's my story. Here's what happened, and I was not disobedient. And then Paul picks up the narrative from his obedience forward, is listening to this to this. Lord and Savior, he had been persecuting. He went to Damascus and Jerusalem and the region of Judea, out to the Gentiles. Why? Verse 20, that they should repent and turn to God and perform deeds in keeping with their repentance. Paul obeyed the gospel. Then he preached the gospel to Jews and Gentiles. Same message, same requirements. We come down to verses 21 through 23. For this reason, everything Paul has been talking about, his obedience to the gospel, his change, <clears throat> for this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Perhaps you noticed, the commissioning of Paul deliberately resembles the call of God to Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Jeremiah. Men were sent by God with his message. No matter the hardship. They were to deliver God's message. Well, at this point in Paul's speech to Agrippa, Festus thinks it's time for him to chime in. He has some wisdom to impart. So Festus says, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Well, in some cases, learning can make people say some crazy things when the learning is based on flawed material, bad sources, corrupt teachers. Yes, it's possible for learning to make people say wrong things. But Paul had learned from the right source, the correct writings, the text God provided through the prophets, and all of that was confirmed on the road when he saw Jesus raised from the dead. Paul wasn't mad. So Paul responded, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. Then Paul says, the king knows all this. None of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. Now, very important. Notice how Paul turns this in verse 27 He makes it personal. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. See, Paul founded his defense on the word of God, what the prophets had said about the coming Messiah and Jesus fulfilling those prophetic words. And then the resurrection of Christ, Paul was a witness. Now he turns that truth into a direct question for the king, do you believe the prophets? And then Paul gives the answer, I know that you believe. I think this illustrates something valuable for us. Never forget, when you speak the gospel to someone, it must be taken to specific application to that person. Do you believe the prophets, Paul said to Agrippa? Now, it's up to Agrippa to respond. If you have the King James, almost thou persuadeth me to become a Christian. If you have the new King James, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. If you have the Revised Standard Version, in a short time, you think you can make me a Christian? And in the English Standard Version that I'm reading from, in a short time, would you persuade me to become a Christian? Now, here's a little textual challenge for us. Uh, Not so much the different ways translators render the verse, but what we don't have here is tone of voice. So we have to take that from implication and context. Is it a statement or is it a question? Some believe the tone of voice was sarcastic and incredible. You think you're going to persuade me to become a Christian? Other commentators who give an analysis have looked at the same verse and believe this was a near conversion, that Agrippa was saying something like, you've almost got me convinced. Here's what may help us with this. Paul's response is part of the context. Paul doesn't respond like he would if this had been sarcastic. It seems to me Paul took these words honestly and literally. Paul said, whether short or long, that is, whatever time it may take, I pray, or I would to God, that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am except for these chains. Seems to me, Paul takes the words of the king on face value and responds with this hope that everyone would become Christians. It was Paul's mission to preach and persuade people to respond to the gospel. John Stott says about this section of Scripture with those words, Paul lifted his hands and rattled the chains which bound him. He was sincere. The prisoner, Paul, sincere. He really believed what he was talking about. He wanted everybody to be like him, including the king. Everybody a Christian, but nobody a prisoner. You cannot help admiring Paul's integrity. Paul made an appeal. He extended the invitation to everyone who was willing to listen. Listen to verses 30 through 32. Then the king rose, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appeal to Caesar. When I teach this, I remember the song written by Philip P. Bliss based on the King James Version, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. And I recall also the words of Paul Hill. He sees in Agrippa the tragedy of the Jews in Acts. He notes These were God's people. The prophets were their prophets. Christ was their Messiah. His resurrection fulfilled their hopes. Still, in large part, they were not persuaded. This tragic story continued through the last chapter of Acts. Takeaways. Takeaways, number one, the primary emphasis in Paul's defense is not really Paul. Many people in Paul's situation would just rant or complain of injustice and make demands and try to establish their case for their own sake. Paul, before Agrippa said, I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers. What Paul said about himself was not designed to elicit praise for him or anything like that. He said about himself only what was necessary to prove it was not about him. It was about God's promise fulfilled in Christ and taking that message out to to Jews and Gentiles. The lesson is when we are called upon to defend ourselves as Christians, Our defense needs to weigh heavily on the side of God and truth and the promises of the gospel. It's not about us. People don't need to hear our story. They need to hear the story of Christ in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It is about God's promise fulfilled in Christ and the message of that promise being offered to all and the steps of faith necessary to embrace it. Number two. I like that phrase in verse 22, the help that comes from God. You know, God never leaves his people helpless. God doesn't abandon his people who are faithful to him and striving to serve him. For us, there will always be, if we will receive it, the help that comes from God. Through his word, prayer, through his people, providentially, there is for us, Always the help that comes from God. Number three, Paul the persecutor became Paul the apostle. Now, underlying that change is something fundamental that we need to talk about, and it's grace. This is one of the reasons we tell people no matter what sin you have committed, what corruption you have participated in, what horrible things you've done, there is grace for sinners who are willing to change, to hear, believe, and obey the gospel, to engage in all that repentance demands. Over in First Timothy 1, listen to Paul writing to Timothy in verses 12 through 17. This is Paul 2 Timothy, 1 Timothy one twelve to 17. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Jesus Christ. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost, but I received mercy. For this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul attributes the good change of his life to the mercy and grace of God and the love of Jesus Christ. Now, grace is not irresistible. That's my next point. One must be persuaded and then respond. It is the teaching of some today that grace is irresistible, that no matter what your heart says or your choice is, the Holy Spirit applies God's grace to you whether you want it or not. Well, look at what we've studied In Acts 26, Paul had to be obedient to the Lord. Agrippa's statement and Paul's response imply the role of persuasion and choice and response. Grace is God's offer. By the activity of faith, sinners can choose to be receivers and keepers of that grace that saves. Number five. Let's take up this matter of interest. Does the Old Testament speak of resurrection? You remember the Sadducees, we've talked about that before, who didn't believe in any resurrection of the dead. Uh, They only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament. Well, the first five books of the Old Testament leave no doubt about God's power, his ability to raise the dead. But after those books, there is much about resurrection. Isaiah twenty six nineteen, But your dead will live, Lord. Their bodies will rise. Let those who dwell in the dust wake up and shout for joy. Your dew is like the dew of the morning. The earth will give birth to her dead. Sounds like resurrection to me. Daniel chapter 12 in verse 2. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. So the doctrine of the resurrection is distinct in the Old Testament while certainly further explained in the New Testament with Christ and the promise of the final resurrection of the dead. You noticed one key concept Paul emphasized is hope. We have that today conveyed to us through the writings of the New Testament telling us how to be saved, how to go to heaven, how to get ready for death, how to live right before God. It is possible because of Jesus Christ and him crucified and raised from the dead. Number six, and finally, can we talk about verse 14, last phrase. Jesus says to Paul, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. Uh, this was a saying from agriculture about using a goad to move a beast of burden. It became an expression or metaphor for useless opposition The deity. Rebellion against God that has no good end at all. If God, it could be said this way crudely if God is poking you with His Word, if preaching and teaching is disturbing your conscience, if good influence is moving you, the most valuable response is to stop kicking and start obeying. So here's a summary of Acts chapter 26. Paul receives permission to speak. He informs Agrippa and the rest of the audience that he counts himself fortunate to make his defense before the king, who is acquainted with the customs and issues and controversies of the Jews. He identifies himself as a Jew who came to Jerusalem, who lived as a strict Pharisee, and who is accused by the Jews for believing in the teaching of the resurrection. He relates that he opposed the name of Jesus, oppressed the saints, went to numerous synagogues to have them punished, and traveled abroad to persecute them. All recounts his conversion from all of that his conversion experience near Damascus, his appointment as servant and witness, and his commission to preach the gospel. He describes how he obeyed the heavenly voice proclaiming the message of salvation, yet was arrested by the Jews who tried to put him to death. So that's our study. In Acts chapter 26, we're moving next to Acts chapter 27 and quickly toward a new study in 1 John, and that will begin February the 21st. Thank you for being with us.